0: All right, our gospel reading this morning is from Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. and We get to hear about Jesus and his family. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we do thank you for your word that you have given to us. Lord, we do ask that you would help us this morning as we hear your word read and proclaimed. How that we would hear your word. That it would be like seeds planted on good soil. Now that we would be those who um, bear much fruit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. says, Then Jesus entered a house. And again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, That house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Turning then to our New Testament reading, Second Corinthians chapter 6, verses 3 uh, through 13 Paul writing in the church in Corinth says we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. rather as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger. in purity, understanding, patience, And kindness, in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying and yet we live on, beaten and yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning, I want to begin by telling you something that showed up in a dream I had a while back. guys like hearing about other people's dreams no nobody ever does it's all right um (laughs) when it's your own dream it seems very meaningful and important and you wake up and you're like oh my goodness i had this dream let me tell you all the details and and the more you try to explain it the more people are like just glazing over they're like none of this means anything to me i don't know what you're talking about i don't see the things you're seeing and to you you see it still although when you try to like further along you get from it, you're like, ah, I mean, it was, it was my house, but it wasn't my house. <laughs> Even that doesn't make sense as you try to put it into words, that sort of thing. But nevertheless, I'm going to share it with you. Something from a dream of mine from I think October of this year. And it was this, this is a direct quote. Cause I woke up and wrote it down direct quote from my dream. The reason we're having so many problems as a nation these days is because we learned the wrong lesson from Romeo and Juliet. We took it as a love story when it was really a cautionary tale that if the adults don't work out their disagreements, their children could end up dead. And I woke up, and I wrote it down because I woke up and thought through it and went, yeah, that sounds about right. (laughs) What's really weird about that particular dream is, and if you know the story of Romeo and Juliet, which, I mean, no spoilers... (laughs) It's been a couple hundred years, right? This is exactly what happens in the story. Is you, It seems like it's going to be this great love story. It's not. It's a tragedy. And it is a tragedy because of the disagreements that run so deeply that in the end, things don't go well, but both Romeo and Juliet end up dead at the end of the story. And... Unnecessarily so, and so, as you read it like thats or as you 're watching the play that 's what you ought to be thinking is this should not be the case anyway, so I have this dream. I had not considered Romeo and Juliet in years, and yet this shows up in my dream and i 'm like that 's just crazy. So I share that with you, enjoy anyway <laughs> the, but the reason I share that with you that 's not the lesson for the day that 's just the introduction to the lesson for the day. The lesson for the day actually is somebody else having dreams, and this is Joseph. And this is, you probably know this story as well. No spoilers here. It's been around for thousands of years. This is Jacob, who has had his name changed to Israel by God. And uh, so sometimes he's still known as Jacob, sometimes Israel, same person. And he has, uh, he's the grandson of Abraham. God says, through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. So we have Abraham, who had Isaac, who has Jacob. Jacob then has these 12 sons. He has two wives and their two servants and through them 12 sons. And he has spent a long time away from the land that God had promised Abraham. And then we were looking at this last fall as he kind of makes his way back to the land that God had promised his grandfather. And that this is where they are going to live. This is where the generations are going to, are going to be. And we see, you know, Abraham planting a tamarisk tree Saying, that's one that takes a long time to develop. And so when he plants this tree, it's a way of saying, my descendants will be in this place. And so Jacob and his family finally get back here. And they get here, and so far what we've seen from them is not that great. And what we've seen them do in the land is not that great. And so uh, we kind of are picking up this story, but we're starting kind of at a brand new point. So here we are in the beginning of the new year, and this is a really major breaking point in uh, the story of all of Genesis. So in Genesis, and by the way, if you're wondering why we're covering Genesis like we are, I'll just remind you, um, <laughs> as Tim Mackey put it when somebody asked him, if I want to understand my Bible better, what would you recommend? And his recommendation was, read the book of Genesis 50 times. And he wasn't kidding. Because if we understand the book of Genesis well, then everything else kind of, we see how it fits into that story. If we don't understand the book of Genesis and we just start picking up other parts of the Bible, then we are just sort of guessing at what the story before must have been. What is the story that this is a part of? And we can make a mess of it real quick. So that's why we're in Genesis. But as we're starting... Uh, this new year, we're actually starting at this big breaking point in Genesis where we had everything that came before Abraham and then you have, uh, Abraham and, uh, and Isaac and that whole period of time we'll get now. And we've been looking at a lot of then Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now we're getting to Jacob's descendants. And that's what the rest of this uh, book really deals with. And it looks like from Genesis 37 to 50, the last section of Genesis, that it is the story of Joseph. We will see as we go through. It is a story of Joseph, but it's also the story of Judah. We'll get to that. Just hang on to that one for now. Um, But before we can really get into their stories and uh, how they progress and take place and what it is we learn about uh, who God is and the way that he is uh, working with his people then and now, we've got to be introduced to the kind of family dynamics. So we've heard a little bit about the, um, about the children of Jacob, but not an awful lot. And so now we get to know them a little bit more, and we start in Genesis 37, verse 1. Ready? Here we go. It says, Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father, as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. All right, you hear this family dynamic? Isn't it lovely? Oh my goodness, it's a mess, isn't it? It is one dysfunctional family tree, I'll tell you that, <laughs> as you follow through this family. But that's, that's kind of the point, is that this family is, like other families, you might even be aware of <laughs> in your own life. That there are uh, sibling rivalries that are taking place. There's favoritism, there's boasting, there's jealousy. Like, this is what's happening as a part of this of this family. And like what I was talking about with the Romeo and Juliet, like this is, it's unnecessary. Like you look at this story and you see the way that they're just tearing each other apart. We'll get more (laughs) on that next week. But as you, you see this family and the dynamics and the, and the tensions that are there and you're like, Oh, just stop it. Right? Why can't, why can't you just be okay with this? But it's, no, I can't be okay with it. So here we have, as we kind of back up and take a look at what's what's going on more carefully, we see that just looking at the relationship Joseph has with his brothers. So it's Joseph and then the 11 others. And uh, Joseph is not quite the youngest, but he's pretty close to it. So they're all big brothers to him, except Benjamin. And um, And then he goes, and he's tending the flocks as a 17-year-old. And then he comes back, and he brings his father a bad report about them. Don't you wish that went into more detail? It doesn't just say a bad report, but it tells us actually what the bad report was. Oh, what did he say? (laughs) I don't know. But whatever it is, like this is what he comes back with? He comes back, and he tells his father something negative about them. And how do the brothers feel about that? Well, naturally, they don't like it. But here's, um, so he starts that. He brings a bad report about them. They're not going to like that, but then it's, it's worse than just that. But then we have this special coat, Right? Now you know about joseph 's special code like if there 's one thing people know about joseph it 's he 's got a technicolor dream code right that 's the that 's the line um, it may actually we don 't know if it was multicolored the way that the Hebrew is right here is um, uncertain, and so like it 's not a word that 's used very much, and so you get, well, it might mean this, it might mean that kind of thing and so i 've heard it. Uh, various things. It could either be is multicolored, so a coat with lots of colors, or it could be uh, that it was just a coat that involved lots of different um, materials or fabrics, whatever. Like it was something that was put together from lots of pieces, I guess. And so kind of ornate in that way. Or I've also heard um, that it's either long-sleeved or a long hemmed, one that goes all the way to the ground kind of thing. And the idea with that is that this would be kind of like a sign of your inheritances. Uh, uh, The way I heard one guy talk about it years ago is um, that you didn't have kind of safety deposit boxes. You didn't have um, wallets that you carried around. You just carried all your important documents in your robe, and so if you had a robe that went all the way to the ground, it was kind of a way of saying, this is going to be somebody who needs a really big wallet, <laughs> because they're going to get all the stuff. And, um, but like I say, we don't really know which one it was, but I think that idea carries through whichever one it is. Because what it, we are told is that um, is that Joseph, yeah, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made a whatever robe for him, but whatever that is, that ornate, that special robe, uh, whatever it is that it looked like, the whole point is not necessarily what the robe looked like. The point was that this robe marked Joseph out as special in his father's eyes above his brother's. That's what the significance of the robe is, that Joseph, even though he is not the firstborn son, he was the firstborn of Jacob's favorite wife, which, again, how many problems does that cause now? And then uh, we have him giving him this special coat and showing favoritism in this way. And how do the brothers respond? Well, it says, When his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Imagine that dynamic. Isn't that lovely? Where you have somebody in your own family that you cannot even say a kind word to them. And why not? Because of the jealousy. Because of because of pride. I cannot bring myself to say anything nice to that guy. Nope. Can't do it because he already gets enough special attention from dad. So no, I'm not doing it. So that's the dynamic. And that's the family dynamic that we are told of leading into Joseph then coming in and saying, Hey guys, I had a dream. You know, this dream where you guys are all bowing down to me. And how do they respond to this? Says, Joseph had a dream, this is verse 5, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. They were already at the point of not being able to say a kind word to him at all, and now they hate him even more. So this is not going well. Then he has another dream, and as though he hasn't learned, <laughs> just tells them that one too. Hey, guess what? Had another dream. This time, not only are you guys all bowing down to me, mom and dad are bowing down to me too. And at this one, uh, Jacob actually pulls him aside and is like, stop it. Says, <laughs> so we told his father as well as his brother, his father rebuked him. What is this dream you had? But this is uh, this is the family dynamic that's set up. This is the family dynamic that's going on when Joseph is saying these things, but there's also, there is a, an assumed trajectory that I think Jacob has in mind. Joseph has in mind, his brothers have in mind, but it is not true. The, the, the dream thing, that's super weird. Like that he has these dreams. And as you read the rest of the story, you find out, Oh my goodness, that actually happens. That takes place. The brothers do come, and they bow down to him. This is, this is um, what you see by the end of the story. But as I say, there's, a, I think, an assumed trajectory, which is at this point, Joseph is 17 and having these dreams, and, yeah, you guys think you're all big and tough, but you know, Dad likes me best, and you're going to bow down to me. And so I think you know, the way that he would see things is I'm going to go from where I am now and things are just going to get better and better and better. And then you're going to bow down to me. But if you know the rest of the story, is that the trajectory that it goes? Is that the trajectory it takes? Not at all. In fact, what we're going to see next week is uh, how that starts off going downhill fast. And uh, the story of Joseph, instead of going from where he is now to better and better and better, and then everybody bows down, instead it goes worse to worse to worse before it gets better and then everyone bows down (laughs) like that like that does happen but the trajectory is different and um, this is the same kind of thing this assumed trajectory i think is the same mistake that peter made when he was following jesus that assuming that if Jesus really is the son of God, if Jesus really is this son of David, who's going to rule on the throne forever, that the trajectory must be, he's going to go from Galilee where he's teaching the disciples and feeding crowds of people with uh, bread, a few bread and fish. And he's going to go from this and just going to get better and better and better. And everybody's going to bow down to him as he goes and he takes the throne in Jerusalem. And this is why you see, um, Peter, rebuking Jesus. When Jesus says, it's, this isn't the trajectory. <laughs> no, actually I'm going to suffer. And I'm going to die first. But then I'm going to be raised <laughs> in glory and power. And uh, Peter's like, no, 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 no. That's not it. That's not the way it goes. And you have to think that Jesus is like, Do, have you not read Genesis? <laughs> Do you not know that this is actually the way that the story goes? Not just for Joseph, but this is what we see a lot that the trajectory isn't going from here to better, to better, to better, but there's going down first before you go up. This is what we see all over the place. Once we learn to recognize this pattern, you see it all over the place, even to the point of seeing um, in Philippians two, this is what Paul writes about with Jesus as coming from heaven to earth, the descent even to earth, and then from there even to death, that it was all part of this much larger pattern of going down before you go up. It's the reason why Jesus is able to say things uh, about if you want to be great, if you want to be first, you got to be last. You got to be the servant of all. He understands this is the pattern. This is the way that it goes. Peter didn't get it initially. He understood it later. But this is the pattern. The pattern that, that Joseph is going to follow. He doesn't know it yet. His brothers don't know it yet. His dad doesn't know it yet. But this is where he's headed. But though that's, he doesn't know the path yet, He does know the end. He does know where it's headed eventually. He's had this dream. He's had it confirmed. He had it twice, which we'll see lots of dreams throughout the rest of Genesis. And uh, that's one of the things we're told. He has it twice. because It's sure to happen kind of thing. And this is where, for us, it's similar. We will follow the same path. Kind of the options that we have We can go up and then down, or we can go down and then up. Those are the paths. And we keep trying to say, no, 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 we're going to ignore the Jesus way of down and then up. We're going to go up first, and then hopefully he's wrong, and we'll just stay up. That's not how it goes. And so we look at the promises of a wonderful future. For the people of God, as we look at the, the vision that John has in Revelation of what it will be like when we are together with Him forever. See, so, yeah, I like that. That's good. So now I'm just gonna go from here to there with things just getting better and better and better all along the way. No? Probably not. <laughs> but we don't know what the uh the difficulties or challenges will be yet. We knew that we do know that that is the way. And that there is the sense of following Jesus, not just in power, but in humility. I'll read to you for a bit from uh, something C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity. And if you've not read it, I highly recommend it, but this is one of those sections that uh, comes back a lot. I think about it quite a bit. It says, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Does this seem to you exaggerated? If so, think it over. I pointed out a moment ago that the more pride one had, the more one disliked pride in others. In fact, if you want to find out how proud you are, the easiest way is to ask yourself, how much do I dislike it when other people snub me or refuse to take any notice of me or shove their oar in or patronize me or show off? The point is that each person's pride is in competition with every other, everyone else's pride. It is because I wanted to be the big noise at the party that I am so annoyed at someone else being the big noise. Two of a trade never agree. Now what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. It is competitive by its very nature, while the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone, That is why I say that pride is essentially competitive in a way the other vices are not. So thinking back to Joseph and his brothers. If his brothers are not dealing in this common sin of pride. Then when his father gives him a robe. They would be able to celebrate that. How foreign is that to the way of the world? When we read the Joseph story and we hear that his father gave him this robe and then the brothers are super mad about it. We understand that. We understand that on a visceral level. We're like, yeah, that's no good. We, I I would hate that if somebody did that. And why? Because we deal in a world of pride and of competition And that means that if Joseph's going to get more of the inheritance, that means I'm going to get less. It's the same kind of idea as when uh, you have one cookie that you're going to share between two people. Yeah, that's right. I'm going there. It's getting controversial. You have one cookie that you're going to share between two people. And, of course, the way we uh, have handled this in our families, you have one person does the dividing, the other person does the deciding. So that way it's as fair as possible, right? So somebody breaks the cookie and says, okay, which piece do you want? Well, which one do you take? You take the bigger one, right? Of course you do. Even though somebody's getting 49% of a cookie and somebody's getting 51% of a cookie, you're going to take the 51% because if they get the 51%, now you feel cheated as though that extra 2% of cookie makes any difference to your stomach. It doesn't. Oh, but to your heart it does. (laughs) Right? I have to be the one who gets the most because our pride is in competition. When the brothers see the coat go to Joseph, that means it didn't go to them. That makes sense? That's the problem. Now, there's another problem of, the, you know, the father giving a coat at all. Anyway, <laughs> we'll leave that aside for now. But just in their relationship, they don't have any control over what their dad's doing. But they do have a control over how they respond to it. And the way that they respond to it is not good. And then, of course, you have the way that uh, Joseph responds to them. Hey, want to hear a dream I had? Not good. Hey, you want to hear another dream I had? Not good. This whole thing is messed up. And the reason it's messed up is because of this competitive nature of pride that has been going since the very beginning. This is the cycle that needs to get broken. How do you break that? That's why we celebrate Christmas. This is what uh, Jesus comes to fix all the brokenness caused by all this pride. But not just to fix it, but also to show us another way a way of living where we're not ruled by pride, but where we can genuinely celebrate in the successes of someone we would consider our enemy. Can you even imagine? That people no longer become our enemies or our rivals or our competition, but people. People who are created by God in his image, and people who are broken by sin and pride in their own lives and in the lives of those around them. people who need a savior just as much as we do. This is a very different way of relating to the people in our own lives. It's a very different way of relating to this world. And typically the first instinctual response to this is that's not the way the world works. If I were to do that, I would be going down not up. Congratulations. That means you understand. But it's a going down that is actually an act of faith. Because it's when we choose to go down, as we follow Jesus, we are trusting that this is the way to the good things that he's promised in the future. As we begin this new year, I'll give you the same challenge I gave the kids in the children's sermon, which is examine your life. Look at the things that don't match who Jesus is, what he looks like, and seek to get rid of that. But then also, look to, for ways that you can put on things that do look like Jesus. So from Colossians 3, when to get rid of things like sexual immorality and impurity and lust and evil desires and greed, which is idolatry, to get rid of things like anger and rage and malice and slander and filthy language from your lips, and do not lie to, to each other. But instead, we want to clothe ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, to bear with each other. And forgive one another. And over all these virtues put on love. This is a new year and it is a great time to change clothes. Let's recognize that God has given us a special robe. (laughs) We got to put it on. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.